Would you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1? Luke chapter 1. This morning we are going to read what are quite literally some of the very most beautiful words in the Bible that have ever been penned to paper of any generation at any age. It's known as the Magnificat, Mary's song to her Lord about her son. Let's read these words together. Luke chapter 1, we'll begin in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thought of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Let's pray to the Lord together. Father, my prayer this morning, quite simply, is that you would thrill our hearts with the glory of Jesus the way you thrilled the heart of his mother all those years ago. I pray, Father, that you would enrapture us in awe, transport us out of our problems and out of our distractions and out of our busyness, Lord, to a place in which we see the holy Christ high and lifted up, exalted and magnified in our hearts and minds. I pray, Lord, that today you would dwell among us and take sweet pleasure in how our hearts are moved toward you. Oh, Holy Spirit, Come into this place, infiltrate our hearts, and transform our lives. In the name of Christ, amen. You may be seated. So there's only really one season that gets its own music, right? And that's Christmas. And I know that a lot of you probably have kind of a love-hate relationship with Christmas music. Um, I mean, most of us have heard it for quite a long time, and a lot of it now has just gotten really trite and weird, if we're being honest about it. But you know, it's also true that we sing some of our richest theology at Christmas time. That if we go back to those hymns that were originally written and we think through the words, some of which we've sung here this morning and will sing in the coming weeks, what we see is that these songs are intended to exalt Christ and to arrest our hearts and to fill our minds with the glory of who he is. There's songs about who Christ is. Listen to this one from Hark the Herald Angels Sing. This is verse 2. Christ by highest heaven adored. Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time behold him come offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, held the incarnate deity, pleased with us in flesh to dwell Jesus, our 
Emmanuel. Songs about who he is. Songs about what he came to accomplish. This is verse 3. From joy to the world, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. I mean, y'all, come on. You know what I'm saying? Come on. You see, when you're engaged to your fiancé, you don't just go and tell your best friend. You shout it. When you welcome your first little baby into the world and you hold him into your hands and you go and you go to talk to the grandparents and tell your family, you don't just tell them, you exclaim it. And when God has been born as a baby onto the earth, you don't just say it. You sing it. But some truths are just too magnificent, too wonderful, too tremendous to be said. They must be saying. And so what we see this morning is the beginning of that beautiful tradition. The original Christmas carol sang by the mother of our Lord, Mary. And I think this is a good opportunity, us, during this Advent season, to stop for a second and to think through why it is that we sing. Why it is that Andrew comes every week and with the praise team singing to the tops of their lungs and putting in all the hours and all the work and practicing late on Wednesday nights while all of us are at home watching reruns of Everybody Loves Raymond. Like, why is all of that worth it? Why is it that Christians are singing people? I want to show you three reasons, at least three, from Mary this morning. First, I want you to see that it's because we have seen God. It's because we have seen God. So Handel's Messiah is one of the single most significant compositions of the last 500 years. And what he does in there that is particularly remarkable is he takes the book of Isaiah and he takes the four gospels and he takes the passages and he arranges them in a particular way. He composes it by, by taking these different passages of scripture and arranging them so that you can see the story of Christ predicted, fulfilled in a way that just causes your heart just to, just to, just to soar and to sing. That, that is that what Handel aims to accomplish is on one hand, he wants to explain and to tell you the story. And on the other hand, he wants to call you to a response to the story. That he wants you to see Christ, and he wants you to respond to Christ. And how do you respond to Christ? You respond by singing. You respond by awe and amazement. What we see in the Magnificat is something very similar. That Mary, in the Magnificat, you just wonder how this little peasant girl comes up with all of these profound things. She didn't invent any of it. She quotes no less than a dozen passages of Scripture in the Magnificat. What she does is she takes all of the rich Old Testament promises, all of the ways that God has worked over the thousands of years of his people, those things that she has memorized and treasured in her heart, all of a sudden she arranges them in a particular way so that she can go and exalt her Lord and say, God, you have been so good. That in one sense she's taking all of these old passages, to explain and elaborate over what's happening with this baby that has been placed in her womb by the Lord himself. And on the other hand, she is showing her response to what God has done. And what is her response? Her response is what moms do. Her response is what worshipers do. Her response is to sing. To sing. It says there 
that what she does in those first two verses, those first two verses, we might say that those are a bit of a summary. Those are, those are kind of the, the, the big idea that Mary is portraying. Her main response, the main elaboration and explanation that she wants us to see. And it, she says that her soul magnifies the Lord. Her soul magnifies the Lord. Now, there's two different ways to magnify something. Okay, you can magnify something by putting it under a microscope. That is, you can take something that's really, really infinitesimally small, and you can magnify it, and you can make it look much larger than it is so that you can actually behold it. There's a second way to magnify something. The other way to magnify something is not through a microscope, but through a telescope. And what a telescope does is a telescope looks off to something that, that seems like it's well beyond us, something that seems like it's far away, that we might see it so that we can see that it is actually much larger than it looks, so that we can see it, in other words, as it truly is, so that we can see Mars and Venus as the enormous planets, so that we can see the constellations and the galaxies for being as expansive and overwhelming as they are. And so what Mary is doing when she says, my soul magnifies the Lord, she's not saying, I'm making God bigger. She can't do that. She's saying, I'm training my telescope upon the Lord that I might see him as he truly is. That I might see him as large and all-encompassing and sovereign and in control and powerful and wonderful and beyond comprehension and infinite as I possibly can. I want my telescope trained on the Lord so that I can see him truly. And what she discovers is good news for her. And what she discovers is good news for us. That when God is bigger, that is, seen as he actually is, then our problems are smaller. That is, they aren't the burden that we imagine them to be. Mary's got a lot going on in her life. We talked about this a little bit last week. Mary's got a lot going on. She is an unwed mother betrothed to a man who is not the father in an honor-shame culture. Hers is not an easy life. And so what Mary shows us is how it is that we can sing. How it is that we can sing when life, life is tempted to overwhelm us. When the call of God on our lives is temp tempted to overwhelm us. When it seems as though our travails, our, our troubles are unassailable. When it seems as though our difficulties are impossible to overcome. That what Mary does is she trains her telescope on God... And what she discovers is, is that God is not in her orbit, revolving around her. That she instead is in God's orbit and that her life is revolving around him. That she is not at the center of the universe. And all of this, the weight of this call and the responsibilities that go with it and the difficulties of the life and the judgment of all of her peers and all of her neighbors, none of that weighs on her. She's not at the center of all of it. Instead, all of it is weighted upon one who is actually large, who is actually infinite, who is actually strong, who is actually able and capable to bear it all upon the Lord. In fact, this God-centeredness is a main idea for Luke throughout his gospel and on into the book of Acts. If you'll notice there, she, he, she says, or the way that Luke, the words that he has is Lord, and then she says God. Magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God. In the book of Matthew, these terms are used 59 times. Okay? By comparison, in Luke's gospel, they are used 194 times. That what Luke wants us to see is that life is God-centered. That hope is God-centered. That joy is God-centered. That your life is not about you. That your family is not about you. 
that your time is not about you, that your treasure is not about you, that at the center of all things is not you. It's not your kids. It's not your marriage. At the center of all things is God, that God is the one around whom the world revolves. And because God is the one around whom the world revolves, our lives, when placed in proper perspective, alleviate us from all of the pressure. We don't have to hold it together. He's holding it together. In fact, there's a, a juxtaposition. So this is the way that, that poetry is written is the first line, you have the first line, my soul magnifies the Lord. And then the second line is really uh, an explanation and elaboration of the first. It really helps clarify. And so you have these corresponding terms, something we're going to talk about again here in a second. We see this Lord and Savior. That is, there's one way to train your telescope on God. And you see how great God is, and it overwhelms you, and it fills you with fear and dread because you recognize, my, I am such a sinner, I am so insignificant, I am so small, what hope do I have to be cared for by a God like that? And you see yourself in the eyes of God as one who, who is completely to be overtaken by him. But there's another way, there's Mary's way, that I recognize that I am infinite, or that I am finite, I recognize that I am limited. I recognize that I'm filled with questions and unbelief. I recognize that I live a life of sin and unfaithfulness. I recognize that whatever call of God comes upon my life is too great for me to accomplish. And so he is my Lord and he is my Savior. That as she magnifies the Lord, she is drawn near to the Lord. And when she is drawn near to the Lord, her problems melt to their proper size. Magnifying the Lord, seeing God as big, makes your problems appear very, very small. Corey Tim Boom uh, has one of my favorite quotes. I've probably quoted it to you before, but she says it like this. She says, look around and be distressed. Look within and be depressed. Look at God and be at rest. This morning, brothers and sisters, train your telescopes on the Lord. Train your telescopes on the Lord. Are you tempted to be overwhelmed? Train your telescope on the Lord. Are you filled with suffering? Train your telescope on the Lord. At, only in the Lord, seen as he actually is in proper perspective, can bring rest to our souls. And that's why, not only when God is bigger, does problems smaller, but when God is bigger, our joy is bigger. When God is bigger, our joy is greater. Art's richest history is decisively Christian. It's decisively Christian. Why is that? God is beyond our ability to articulate. God is greater than our imaginations can elaborate. God is deeper than our philosophies can explicate. And what art is, is art is our attempt to express the seemingly inexpressible. They are our attempt, it is our attempt, all the arts, so that we can say or display something in which we, we find in our imaginations a blot, we find in our vocabulary an ineptitude. It is our way to begin to try to get out of us the awe that is inside of us. Hans Christian Andersen, he says it like this. He says, when words fail, music speaks. When words fail, music speaks. So is there any wonder here why Mary sings? Is there any wonder here, while she here has met face to face with an angel of God, an archangel, Gabriel, and he, she is about to give birth as a virgin to the very son of God, cloaked in flesh. What words do you use, man? No, you have to sing, don't you? You have to sing. Singing, 
exalts God and it shrinks our problems. Singing exalts God and it shrinks our problems. There's another thing I want you to see here, okay? There's two ways when it comes to uh, interpreting poetry. There's two different ways that we could see magnifying the Lord and rejoicing in God, her Savior. And so she does rejoice. And this idea of rejoicing, it's to have a heart that is thrilled. It's to have a heart that is, that is so filled to the brim that it just, it just can't be quiet. It's just going to pour out. It's just going to stir up inside of you. Like It's coming out somewhere. Like Everybody get ready. She's got something to say, right? So how do we see that the words magnify and rejoice correspond in the same ways that Lord and Savior correspond. Well, first of all, we can see this as a cause and effect. That in one sense, because she has magnified the Lord, because she has seen, really seen him, because she has really laid her eyes on his greatness, on his kindness, on his mercy, on his, on his intractable greatness, her heart is thrilled by it. She rejoices in it. She's overcome through it. Another way to see it is not just that it's a cause and effect, but also that it is an, an explanation and a further elaboration. That is, what I mean is, is that she is not just that because she has magnified the Lord, now she rejoices, but she is actually magnifying the Lord by rejoicing. That one of the ways that we magnify God, one of the ways that we exalt God, is by rejoicing in Him. By rejoicing in Him. That's why any faith that comes to you and just makes it a bunch of things that you've got to do is not the Christian faith. That, that's why any understanding of Jesus that is driven by guilt is not the Christian faith. The Christian faith says that I have a heart that is so enraptured by the joy of Christ, so full of the passion of God, that I have no choice but to exalt him in my life. And so because she has experienced the goodness of God, because she has overcome by the power of God, because she has glimpsed the enormity of God, because she is entranced by the holiness of God, she says, I magnify the Lord, and I magnify the Lord by rejoicing in the Lord, that my heart has found the treasure that it has long sought, and it is thrilled to the brim, and God is then exalted in her in the way that she was designed and intended from the garden as an image bearer. And this sets into motion a cycle of joy that is intended to be in the Christian life. I magnify the Lord, and then I have joy in the Lord. And then I have joy in the Lord, and my joy in the Lord magnifies the Lord. And because the Lord is then magnified, I have even greater joy in the Lord. That what's meant to be accomplished is that your problems would be seen small and your hope it would stay fresh and your joy that it would be big. And so I say it again. The reason that we sing, the reason that we sing is because our problems are small. Not because they don't hurt. Not because they aren't hard. We sing because they are small. Because we see them as small when we exalt our God. And so we sing, exalting our God and shrinking our problems. So why do we sing? We've seen God. We've seen God. We've glimpsed him. Why else do we sing? God has seen us. God has seen us. Tolstoy, uh, he once wrote that, that, uh, that music is the shorthand of emotion. Music is the shorthand of emotion. That it is inherently emotive. 
Now, I've talked about this a little bit lately because I think it's really fresh on my heart. There was this time for me where the Christian faith, everything had to be perfectly rational. And I was working through that. And I I was kind of, the pendulum was swinging back from a time in my life in which everything was hyper-emotional. But the Lord has been bringing me back to the center lately. Because what I've recognized is that we can become afraid of emotion in such a way that actually depletes our life of the goodness that God intends through those emotions. How can you know a glorious Christ and not feel something for him? Like, there are times, there are seasons in which there are droughts, certainly. There are seasons in which things are difficult, or there's a a dark night of the soul, or a depressive state. But when we catch a glimpse of God, when we begin to fellowship with God, it moves us inwardly. And that is certainly where Mary is. So if you, as you move out of those first two verses into verses 48 and 49, Mary begins to kind of give you the why. Why is it that her soul magnifies the Lord? Why is it that her spirit is rejoicing in, in God? Why is it that this is taking place? And so she's really getting to a bit of her personal testimony. And as she gets into her personal testimony, the emotion ramps up. And she's attempting to to figure out exactly how it is that she can express this great emotion that she she experiences as she's thought about God and she's thought about the call that's come upon her. And the single perspective slash emotion that she's most filled with is that of gratitude, thankfulness. She's profoundly thankful for what God has done in her life. We see this thankfulness in at least two different dimensions. The first is, is that she says... He saw even me. He saw even me. Notice there that she refers to herself in verse 48 as a servant. As a servant. Now, we don't really live in a a servant culture, okay? But maybe some of y'all have watched Downton Abbey, okay? Servants are like furniture, okay? They're not supposed to be seen. They're there, but nobody's supposed to know that they're there. They do their work. They're not friends that you tell stories with. They're not people that you share memories with. They're not the the ones that you go and, and tell the latest dad joke to. They have a job to do. They have responsibilities to uphold. In fact, servants are usually only known. They're like the offensive line in the sound booth, okay? They're only known when they make a mistake. Nobody knows they're there unless they, they blow it big, right? And for many of us, That's exactly our concept of who God is. That God is far away somewhere. We're servants, like Mary says in his kingdom. And God only notices us when we blow it. God only cares about what we do when we do something wrong. We just can't get it right, you know. But look at what Mary says. He looked on the humble estate of his servant. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed. This is what she says. My master, he saw me. Not because I'd blown it. Not because I'd tripped up. Not because I was so weak. Not because I was such a loser. Not because I'd upset him. My master saw me because he loved me. That when she says that he looked upon me, that she recognizes in his glance something that someone that cherishes her, someone who adores her, someone who takes pleasure in her, someone who desires her, someone who chooses her, someone who loves her, someone who cares for her, someone who will send his own son into the world for her. 
And she's overcome with gratitude. She's overcome with thankfulness. That Mary is in a place and she says, how how do you respond to that? How how do you respond to a master who looks upon his lowly servant and says, I love you. I'm sending my son to die for you. You sing. You sing. That is, Mary recognized that there was nothing about her life that warranted this look from God. That there was nothing about her life that merited this kind glance from the Lord. So she saw God as big, and she saw herself as lowly. And this, this is the rich soil from which gratitude springs forward. That humility cultivates thankfulness. She talks here about her humble estate, right? Humble. That's a word for our day. Humble. That humility cultivates a spirit of thankfulness. Haughtiness crushes it. See, the prideful... The prideful, they are prone toward jealousy and discontentment. I deserve what you have. And I certainly deserve more than what I have. The humble, the humble, they are prone toward toward amazement and joy. I can't believe that I have what I have. I can't believe that God has given to me what he has given to me. The prideful think, how could God possibly expect so much from me? The humble think, How could I possibly have expected so much from God? And that's where Mary is. Mary is in a place in which she thinks to herself, how in the world could he see me? He saw even me. He loved even me. He gave even to me. See, it's in that way that pride is an obstacle to singing and humility is a fountainhead. Pride says, how could anyone ever expect me to humiliate myself in front of all of these people to sing? Humility says, how could I have received so much and be quiet? That's why we sing. That's why we sing. We have been given what we did not deserve. We have been loved in a way that we did not warrant. God has looked upon us. But he didn't just see her, he blessed her. And so she says, he saw even me, and he blessed even me. Now, Mary's idea of being blessed is quite different from our idea of being blessed. Our idea of being blessed is being able to retire down onto a beach house on 30A and to just do whatever we please. Mary's is tied to servanthood. Mary's is tied to the one who has done great things for me. What is the great things that he has done for her? He has enlisted her into his service. He has enlisted her with a great and difficult call upon her life. He has enlisted her into a calling that will cost her her life, that will cost her an easy way of living, that will cost her every ounce of comfort and every dream and ambition that she had ever had from the future. It will cost all of that. And yet she says, I am blessed. I am blessed. And why am I blessed? I am blessed that my Lord, the one in whom my soul rejoices, the one for whom my soul magnifies, I am blessed because he said that even I am useful to him. I'm useful to him. That he can take somebody like me, a lowly peasant girl in the middle of nowhere that everybody has forgotten about, that is seemingly completely unimportant to anyone on the earth, and he can say, I will do a great work through her. Through her, I will bring my son into being and he will save all the people. 
Isn't that amazing? Did you know God can use even you? God can use even you. Some of you are rich or poor, or some of you are healthy or unhealthy. Some of you are young or old. Some of you are educated and some are uneducated. Some are nearing the end of their retirement, and some are not even beginning their first job yet. Some of you are in high school, and some of you have grandchildren. Some of you can think back to times in which you had great ambition, and then you sinned, and it felt like it all went away. Some of you have your whole lives in front of you, and you have no idea what lies ahead. But regardless of where you are, by his might, by his might, by the way that he worked in Mary, if he can use her, he can use you. That you are blessed. That you are blessed because you are useful to the living God. Last Sunday, if you let me just get personal for just a second. Last Sunday, I was overcome with thankfulness. I went home. And many of you were here during, during a season in which my health was just really, really poor. And as people, I think, who have near death often do, you have moments of just reflection. And last Sunday, we had sang just so beautifully, and the church is filled to the brim, and there's just the, the children's space is overflowing. And I get in the back seat, and behind me is this little blonde-headed boy, who's filled up our house with personality, that's for sure. These two girls who I'm just, I adore. And I had this thought. He almost never was. They almost only knew me through photographs. I almost never got to live to see what God would do at Iron City Baptist Church and the transformation that he would bring about. And I didn't deserve any of it. Within 24 hours of stepping out of this life and into the next, according to the doctors, God spared my life. And he let me be used to be Megan's husband. He used me to be Gracie and Sarah and Josiah's daddy. He used me to be the pastor of Iron City Baptist Church. And if I have learned nothing... I have learned that I am too weak to have mattered in the economy of God. And yet by his kindness, by his goodness, by his sovereignty, by his might, he set his favor upon me and blessed me in ways that I can't even begin to articulate. It can only be saying. It can only be saying. He has blessed us, hasn't he, church? He has blessed us. We have a lot to be thankful for. He has blessed us. We have no reason to be quiet. We have no reason to sit there as stoics. We have every reason to elevate our hearts and exalt our Lord by lifting our voices and singing with Mary all those years ago. God has seen us. And God has shown us. That's the last reason. That's where I want to land this morning. That God has shown us. Several years ago, Perhaps these two stories, these last two stories are very related. Several years ago, I decided that I was going to take up whitewater kayaking. Okay? And as Cody Hale is prone to do, I went all in without any training. Okay? No wonder I got close to death, right? And so 
I decided that what I was going to do is I found that there's this place in Talladega Creek where you can ha- hike in, and if it has rained at just the right time and just the right way, it's a class three rapid. So I take this kayak that I bought as, as a discount at a store I worked back in college, and I walk it down into the, to the thing, and I just strap on the PFD, the helmet, and I dive in. Never done it before, okay? Aside from one trip in Andrew's swimming pool, that was pretty traumatic. But a- apart from that, and you know, from a distance, that water looks like babbling brooks and such tranquility and docility, and it's just, it just brings calm to the soul, doesn't it? Let me just tell you, you put a boat in the middle of a class three rapid, and all of a sudden, all logic goes out. It's not so tranquil anymore. You see, what I learned is what Mary learned. It's what Job learned. That which seems docile at a distance is actually quite fearsome close up. Right? That what Mary experiences is all of her life is she's heard about God and she's heard about his faithfulness and she's heard about his greatness and she's heard about how tremendous he is and how, how he has sustained his people and worked through his people and fulfilled his promises and did all of the things. And at a distance, it's, it's such a tranquil picture. And now she finds herself right in the middle of the eye of the hurricane as God's favor has descended upon her, as she has been blessed by that look of the Lord, by that call of God. And that which seemed tranquil and docile at a distance is suddenly very turbulent in the middle of her life. And God is showing to her. She's recognizing and realizing that he is much stronger than he has ever seen. I love, he says it just like this. He says, she has shown, that's where I get the word, the strength with his arm. That is his strength in the highest degree. Throughout the Old Testament, and you can make, this is really an allusion to the Septuagint, which we've talked about before. But there's his, the, the finger of God's strength, and there is the hand of God's strength, and there is the arm of God's strength. So if you go back to the Exodus narrative, God, God sends the plague of the gnats by the strength of his finger. He sends the other plagues by the strength of his hand. But when the Red Sea is parted, when the armies of Pharaoh cross in and their wills begin to muck and the sea closes in over them and the greatest superpower in the history of the world at that point is encompassed in the wrath of God, they are overcome by the arm of his strength. So what Mary is saying is, I have experienced the might of God, the power of God in the greatest degree. The very power which delivered Israel from the grips of Pharaoh has called me into his service and enlisted me that he might deliver all of his people from their sin and from their suffering. And throughout this, there are three different demonstrations of his his strength. You can see, first of all, he's able to humble the greatest. Look at what it says beginning there in verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud. That brings an image of Babel to our minds, doesn't it? He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. He has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. The greatest in the history of the world, God has brought down to their very knees, in other words. Remember what we said about Luke, that in the forefront of Luke's concern is the upside-down nature of the kingdom. That the kingdom of God functions and is established and is consummated in a way that is the exact opposite of what we would expect. The exact opposite of the way the kingdom of man so often works. 
So you might think about this context in which they live. They live in Rome. And how was Rome established? Rome was established by their great generals, by Julius Caesar and Mark Antony, whose reputations on the battlefield ultimately led them to being venerated as gods. And so this mighty, empi- this mighty empire, this great superpower is established by these mighty men who are able to stand at the forefront. The, the celebrities of Rome at the day were the gladiators, right? These men who were almost like not real men came out chiseled out of granite, facing down lions and bears and all types of beasts, fighting to the death with nothing but a sword or a stick and a shield. What does God say? I humbled Pharaoh, and I humbled Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, and I will humble Rome too. I will bring Caesar down to his knees. In fact, I will bring Caesar down to his knees, and he will bow before the one who is nothing but an infant, a child in the womb of a peasant girl, the one who will be laid in a manger filled with hay. That before him, Nebuchadnezzar and Pharaoh and all of the mighty gladiators will bow down. Mark, Antony, and Caesar, all of them will bow down. And they will declare with all of the nations that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is, that's how mighty he is. That's how strong he is. That he will humble the greatest. Not only will he show his strength that way though, praise God, he is able to exalt the lowest. He is able to exalt the humblest. Look at back to verse 52. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones, but there's an ex- exaltation that happens too. He has exalted the humble estate, like Mary. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped the servant Israel in remembrance Of his mercy. That God's mercy is for the humble. And you think out throughout the history of of the big story one more time. Who was it that he made into a great nation? He took a nation of slaves and turned them into a superpower. He took a prostitute Rahab and a Moabite Ruth and turned them into the royal line that would lead to David and ultimately to the Messiah. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to take a baby. He's going to grow him into a man that doesn't even know where he's going to lay his head down at night. A humble man. A man who will humble himself as a servant and empty himself of all of the privileges and all of the dignities of being a true deity. And he will go and he will march upon to the cross. And he will bear upon himself in the wounds of his body my sin and your sin. And the sins of the very people that are driving the nails through his hands and feet. And through him, through him. He will establish a new kingdom. Through him, he will establish a kingdom that is not of this world. Through him, he will establish a kingdom that will not go away the way that Egypt went away. And will not go away the way that Assyria went away. And will not go away the Babylon went away. And will not go away in a way that they couldn't have foreseen. But now that we all know the way that Rome will go away. He will establish a kingdom seated upon the throne of David from a rugged cross that will endure forever. That's how mighty he is. That's how strong he is. Because he's able to promise the surest. He's able to promise the surest. There's, at the end in verse 55, she lands on Abraham. All the way back to Genesis chapter 12. Isn't this beautiful how she does this? All the way back to Genesis chapter 12. But for you English majors, there's a conflict here in the, in the text. Alright, so it seems to be in past tense. 
and I know I got a lot of yellow here. He has helped his servant Israel, but then it goes to the future, his offspring forever. How can it use a past tense subject with a, with a futuristic predicate? Like, is there some kind of conflict that's happening here? There's a tense in the Greek called future aorist, all right? And, and that's already more than you wanted to know. I, I got that. That's already more than you wanted to know. But it's significant. It's significant. Because here's what it means. It means that you can look into the future as though it's already as certain as the past. It means that you can look at the future promises as though they are already as fulfilled as the past promises have been. That you can look forward as though it is already written in the history book. You see it? Imagine Mary singing to her baby, just like all of us do, like every mother does, dreaming of who he will become, dreaming of what he will accomplish, dreaming of him being a man that one day she will admire and respect, dreaming of his integrity. And as she dreams, knowing, knowing that unlike all of us, we she will never be disappointed by the life of her son. It's already certain. It's already positive. It's already a, a, a historical fact, even though it hasn't happened yet, that Jesus is going to be worthy of the name that is given to him, that he is going to keep every promise, in other words. God's made some big promises to you and me. God's made some big promises to us. He's promised us that all this hard stuff that's happening to us will not be wasted. He's promised us that. He's promised us that he, since he has began a great work in us, that he will bring it to the full. He's promised us that. He's promised us that he will sanctify us, that he will ultimately get rid of all of the sin and all of the marks of sin, that we will be fully who he intends for us to be, displaying the glory of God for everyone. He has promised us for that. He has promised to us that all of our sin is going to be eradicated. All of our suffering is going to be a historical fact and not a future reality. He has promised to us that our tears are going to go away and they're going to go away forever. He's promised all of that. He has promised to us, just like he came one time, that he's going to come again. That he's going to establish a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. And that we, as his disciples, are going to reign over the nations together. He's promised us that. And this is how mighty he is. It's as though it's already history. That Jesus came and was born and he lived and was crucified and he was raised on the third day. And he gives the assurance that what she's saying 2,000 years ago is just as true today in 21st century America. I ask you, church, this morning, what choice do we have but to sing? To sing. Our futures are secure. We can sing. Let's pray to the Lord together this morning. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. -on -one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.